welcome to the Leadership of Fools. We are ready for a rock and roll episode. We are, I mean, we're doing things differently this time around. Uh, long-time shipsters will uh, be used to Colin Beatty being uh, on the ship, but we've thrown him overboard. And uh, our first mate today is Alice Sidhu. Welcome on board, Alice. Hi, Rick. I'm pleased to be here. I don't know how um, how well Colin is doing since we did ship him overboard. Uh, he'll be right. He can, <laughs> do- he can doggy paddle for hours. He can. I'm sure he'll be absolutely fine and not missing us at all. And uh, joining us is Adam Ferguson. Good morning, Rick. Uh, how are you feeling today? Excellent. Very excited about today's conversation. Me too, because we've gone high tech. We've gone digital. Alice uh, insists on pushing this podcast into the digital age. And so our uh, our fourth uh, crewmate here today is joining us via Skype. It is the uh, very special guest, David Marquet. Welcome on board. Hey, thank you for having me, bringing me on board. Now, you know, in a submarine, it's hard to throw someone overboard. So <laughs> Right off the bat. It is. Now, you'll have to be very patient with our very, very poor nautical analogies during this conversation, which we don't yeah. normally do. Having said that, it is leadership of fools. Yes. And so we might actually just give in to the temptation, given that you are a retired US Navy captain and a big part of what we're going to be talking about is your experience, you know, leading a submarine, a nuclear submarine. So just bear with us. And, I mean, we've um, all we led nuclear there. submarines, just uh, <laughs> yeah, some of yeah. us better than others. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. It's the if we, if it's not that that's the differentiator with David. It has to be the fact that he's a best-selling author. I'm not sure how many of us would be able to, to True, point to yes. that. True. Yes. I mean, nuclear submarine tick. Best-selling author. Not yet, so much. I've yet to accomplish. <laughs> it's Fair coming. Yes. <laughs> All right. So there's a lot going on. There are going to be some poor metaphors and nautical analogies. We've already explained that. So, Rick, what's our leadership dilemma for today? Well, that's a good question, Alice. Um, I'm going to throw it back to you. Uh, okay. What is our leadership dilemma today? Okay. Well, with David, I feel like you need that responsibility. <laughs> Really establish yourself as first mate. Which is really interesting because we are going to be talking about leadership responsibility and empowerment. David, there are so many things I wanted to ask you about and I know that Adam and Rick did as well after reading your book and I actually thought we're going to go a little bit left field and I want to start or explore the leadership conversation around what happens when you, when you as a leader stop telling people what to do. Yeah. So... First thing you do is panic. <laughs> That's just what you want on a nuclear submarine, just that sense of panic. Right, right, no, no, right, right, right. So first of all, I can't affirm that any of these things actually happen. Good, allegedly. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple things. Number one, you can only control yourself. And for a long time, I spent a lot of my life trying to control other people, trying to, quote, motivate them and inspire them and all kinds of words that empower them or engage them. Uh, I'm sure you can add to that list of words. And I got to a situation where at the last minute I got transferred to a ship that I didn't know. And uh, what did I do? I gave orders like any submarine captain normally would, and I gave a bad order. Now, normally when you give a bad order as a leader, you're like, well, I got to give better orders. That's the problem. But when you don't know the ship, because this was a last minute transfer to a different kind of ship, I was like, well, that's not going to work. Um, and so and so I, I talked to my guys and my guys said, well, you know what the deal is, Captain, you can't, you know, you just need to be quiet. And I it was a little surly. And I said, really? But when I thought about it, I thought, you know what, you guys are right. So how about I don't tell you what to do, but you got to stop asking me to tell you what to do. We looked each other in the eye, we shook hands, and that was the deal that we made. But the first thing that happens is it goes against your instincts, and you, and you it really 
feels scary. And every day when I was under stress or pressure, I wanted to revert back to just barking orders and the comfortable old way of naval, naval captains. <laughs> There's a lot of really interesting things in what you said there. And one of those is, I guess, the, the situational leadership, which is that you're on a nuclear submarine. Normally when we as leaders make decisions or, you know, have to give guidance, they're not normally matters of life and death in most circumstances. So the risk of what those, some of those decisions and the consequences of those become really, really important. How much of that was a factor in your mind um, in that type of situation? Yeah, a lot. And it's go- and it, for me, it's counterintuitive. We fe- it feels safer when we make decisions and we can control things or we think we're controlling things. But it's actually safer but very fragile. And we want to think as leaders that if I say something and it's wrong, if I say something and it's not a good idea, that the team will speak up. This is a fantasy. okay? (laughs) And we push the and instead of taking control of ourselves and taking responsibility, we push it on our team. Well, you guys got to speak up if you don't think it's a good idea. Right. How many times have we heard that? It's on you to speak up. And this is just an abdication of responsibility. And what what you really want to do is lean back and let the team lean into you. And even though it feels scarier, it's actually safer. This this is one of the conundrums of leadership because when they lean into you, they are owning it and they are inviting feedback. They're inviting scrutiny. They say, hey, here's what I intend to do. Here's what I plan to do. I'm announcing it to the world. But if you don't stop me, I'm doing it. But it's that announcement to the world publicly before the thing happens that invites the rest of the team to say, yeah, not so not so much a good idea. Let's talk (laughs) about it. And it's that culture which makes the team resilient and safe. And I can't tell you how many times uh, on the ship. uh, Just fast forward. We we got inspected about a year later and we got and the the ship got the highest score that they'd seen in the Navy. And I asked the head inspector, how could this possibly be? Because. We weren't any smarter than anyone else. And he said, you know, the, the only difference was you guys tried to make as many mistakes as everybody else. The only pro- the only difference was your mistakes never happened. They didn't propagate through the system because someone stood up. There's an opportunity for someone to catch it and stop it. And most organizations, when they run in a hierarchical top-down way, propagate the errors from the top all the way throughout the organization. And maybe one courageous person stands up and says, I think that's foolish, and then they get fired. <laughs> but uh, It must be hard to establish you know, that sort of uh, empowering in, in the military sense because I, I feel like the, 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 the vibe around the military is that uh, they don't have to be empowered to argue against orders. It's the kind of one thing they're, they're empowered to do is follow orders. Yeah, there's a really interesting um, organisational dynamic that plays out and it's in, it's the whole idea of what you know what the structures look mm. like so what's interesting about your story or one of the many interesting things about your story David is exactly what Rick talked about which is what the the military and you know naval academies by their nature mm. assume, assume a command and control environment and so how yeah. does how does that actually happen when you're trying to empower people what does that sort yeah. of look like on a day-to-day and were you worried basis? that empowering your crew might end up in a sort of crimson tide situation <laughs> where they're just itching to sort of <laughs> mutiny against you you know just any order you give they're like nah, nah lock, him the <laughs> lock him in the brig man overboard yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah man overboard it's the captain um well so so first of all I never use the word empowerment. Uh, I just 
our, our thing was about language. I, I think there's two things wrong with the leadership development um, industry, so to speak, of which I'm a part at this point. But first thing is we teach the wrong thing. And the second thing is we teach it in the wrong way. Other than that, everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically when I say we teach the wrong thing, we're teaching people how to give better orders as opposed to figure, teaching yeah. people how not to give orders, how to build a team that doesn't need to be told what to do. That's number one. Number two is we teach leadership like it's a theory, like we teach astrophysics. You know, uh, otherwise, why would we go to a one-day class and think we know anything about leadership? Leadership is a practice. It's a language. I wouldn't learn football or rugby by going to a one-day class and then ask people, oh, oh, please send us the learning objectives. I got to put the ball at the other end of the field. Now, oh, that's rugby. pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still a theory to yeah, that. No, the game, no, no. I'm, try I'm trying to be uh, sensitive to my audience. <laughs> and... Uh, and so the problem is, uh, don't tell people they're empowered. That's a meaningless statement. That's a waste of time. What we would do is we would just say, we would focus on the words people use. And I would listen to them very carefully. And they would say things like, hey, I see this. I think this. Maybe I recommend something. And I would say, let's take it to the very next level. Just tell me what you would intend to do if I weren't here. And if I don't stop you you automatically have permission. And uh, when Stephen Covey visited the ship, he said, quote, it's the most empowering workplace he'd ever seen, but empowerment was never a word that we used. It was just the outcome of people using a different language. So the language is like kicking the ball, running with the ball, throwing the ball. It's the way you act, you, uh, what's the word? It's, it's how you exercise leadership mm -hmm. is through language. Mm -hmm. I think the conversation that tends to happen then is, you know, our leaders walking the walk as well as walking the talk. So that's the whole piece that sometimes is that incongruence between what we say and what we do. So, Adam, from your perspective, I mean, I know you're, you've read David's book and you're a big fan. <laughs> How does some of that play out in, the, in your organisational context? Walking the walk? Well, uh, look, I, I, um, I love David's book and as, as I read through it, I uh, thought about my own leadership journey and, and tried, attempted many of the, I think, the things that, that David was successful at and uh, had partial success but also had some failure along the journey. And uh, so for, for me, David, I think the one of the critical things was was I did, did look to the team to, to lean in and, and step back and I found myself in a situation where I wasn't the domain expert. So really did need to rely on, on others around me. Um, I think one of the, the, the things that really challenged me as I read through your book was uh, I was really interested that you actually targeted the or, or almost the middle managers rather than going top down in terms of the approach. Um, so I was really mm. curious as to why you sort of went to sort of, if you like, the, the middle managers as opposed to going to those that are reporting directly to you. Because I think that might have been where, where I, I went wrong. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be so hard on yourself maybe. But um, for me, I have, I have a big problem when we say one thing and we do something else. That's and called lying. That's called lying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and we, we had this. So, so, so our navy, our navies are organized very similarly, and we had this thing in the navy where we would say that the chiefs ran the navy, and the chiefs were the senior enlistment. So these are people with high school degrees who'd come up through the ranks, and maybe they'd been in for eight, as minimum eight, ten, twelve 
14, 20 years. And they were technical experts in their field. They're the ones who repaired the pumps, loaded the torpedoes, and did all these things. But it was what I would call happy talk. It was a word that we said, oh, the chiefs run the Navy, but it was the farthest thing from the truth, especially in the nuclear Navy. We had this creep. We had this um, accountability creep where it all went up to the captain. And so he said, well, chiefs, what forms do you sign where you're the last person on the form? None. You know, what reports do you submit? None. What decisions did you make? Mm-hmm. Well, you make recommendations. They get approved by the- Okay, so that you're not in charge of anything. Your, okay, your so impersonation of a chief is excellent, by the way. That was <laughs> yeah. spot on. That's just how I imagined a chief. <laughs> Something you're aspiring uh, to be yeah. now, Rick. Oh, I'd love to be a chief in charge of the pumps. <laughs> if I, if I had a cup out. of coffee, I'd be holding it right now. <laughs> so so uh, I, I gave the chiefs actual authority. Um, when I got to the ship, according to Navy regs, if you wanted to go on vacation or holiday or liberty, we called it, you needed to, you needed a form that had to be signed by six people if you were a junior enlisted person. Mm-hmm. And so three chiefs and three officers. And so we eliminated all the officers and we eliminated the two uh, junior chiefs. And we said, you know what? We only want one signature. We just want the chief who, who's in charge of your section. If he says you can go on vacation, you can go on vacation. We don't need any more people. And the phrase we use is push the authority for making decisions down to the people with the information. Most organizations, all hierarchies suffer from the same illness, which is there's a gap between the authority and the people with the information. And so the normal approach is to push the information, usually with expensive software that we buy to allow us to make stoplight charts to the people with authority for decisions. But what you want to do is take the authority for making decisions and push it down to the people who can make the information. That makes it more resilient, fun, flexible, and higher performing organization. Uh, I, I love the, the statement or the quote there, David, but um, uh, doesn't the, don't you have to have the right environment uh, and, and alignment to the direction as to where you're going to, for that to be successful? Because otherwise people with the information may not know what we're actually trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, by environment, there, there are two – we found that there were two underlying conditions that needed to be satisfied in order to, quote, empower the team to higher levels of control. One was technical technical competence, which is what you want. I mean, you don't want someone operating a reactor who doesn't know how. <laughs> and and the second thing is what we called clarity. So it was give control with competence and clarity. And they, you know, they all had to start with C. So that, that was why we used clarity. But it's purpose, it's why, it's the context, it's the environment, it's what are we trying to achieve. If, if, if people don't understand what you're trying to achieve, then they don't have a guide for making decisions and you can't divest decision making. You hide that. In fact, I know leaders who intentionally obfuscate the purpose of the organization. So people that were running around, well, we're depending on you, oh great one, to tell us. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that's and right. that's just messed up. And then when they leave, the organization falls apart and they go, oh, you know, what? what I shouldn't, so I shouldn't so. have insisted that everyone call me. Oh, great one. That was my first mistake. <laughs> Damn it. That's the new thing. That's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sending a note right now to change my business. So, so the, the confidence and clarity are, are preconditions mm-hmm. to, to making that step where you're uh, to, to use the word and start to empower your team. Yeah. 
And I feel That's, like the yeah, objective's it, quite clear on a, a submarine. One, don't let water on the boat. And two, don't yeah. accidentally start a war. I mean, they're the two main things they're trying to achieve every time they're underwater. Oh, That's on. why you're in charge. I, I just want to call out and maybe have David clarify, don't accidentally start a war, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> maybe don't start a war, full stop, should be oh, one no, of the if objectives. You, if, or? If, 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 you just, if you're trying to do it on purpose, that's fair enough. I mean, sometimes you've got to start a war. I mean, we all know that. Yeah. But do you not want to accidentally hey, start hey, a war? Hey, hey, we never started. We never started. Clear <laughs> about that. Like you hit me in the face, so I'm coming after you. Yeah, this is who goes first. Allegedly, allegedly. Who goes first is kind of important here. Having said that, I want to pick up on what, what we just, you know, made light of. It's the whole thing then around if uh, devolving, you know, responsibility for decisions and really playing to what, what people's strengths are. What, how do you decide, because this is, a, you know, to me it seems like one of those fundamental challenges of leadership, which is, you know, how do I decide what I have to do versus what I can yeah. actually genuinely leave my team to do? And, you know, we're all, we're all reading those articles that say, you know, the top three things successful leaders do and the first one is do only the things that you can do. I think one of the challenges yep. is how do I as a leader work out what those things are because if you ask someone, they would say, I absolutely need to do everything. I do need to be that seventh signature on the form that you talked about. So how did, yeah. how did that work for you, David? Yeah, so um, I thought about that. And the list is actually pretty short in my mind. Uh, one thing on the list was moral decisions. And for me, this meant the final decision to push a button to launch a weapon that was going to result in the death of a human being. I did not feel that it was within my purview as the captain to let anyone on the crew feel that they had caused the death of some other person, that that burden needed to rest with me. So this is the only thing where I said, I will give a positive order to, to launch the Now you can Flood, load, load the torpedo, flood down the torpedo tube, open the equalized sea pressure, open the outer door, line it up to the target. You can do all that with, with intent statements, but the final thing is going to be on me. Number two, relationships. You can't go to your EA and say, you know what, I want you to have a really good relationship with the chairman of uh, BHP because that's your important client. Okay, mm -hmm. So that doesn't work. Any kind of relationship. Your own personal level of knowledge. You can't delegate to someone else to oh, hey, be really smart about XYZ system because I don't really have time for it. Um, and uh, that's where I started. But, I, but, but over the uh, couple of years, I did add one more, which is training. I, I don't think – I think you want to get out of the business of telling what, people what to do, but training, learning is okay. Having seminars will where you we, – we would do a lot of thought seminars. It's sort of like Einstein's, you know – uh, you know, what would it look like if I were traveling at the speed of light? So, hey, what would happen if this and we would create these sort of storylines and then I would uh, let the officers talk through it and participate in the conversation. Sometimes there were right answers, sometimes not. Sometimes it was more about just thinking through tough problems. But um, I think that's a critical role for leadership. But if it's not one of those things, I'm not sure you need to be doing it. That would be very uh, confronting, I think, for a lot of leaders who, or aspiring leaders as well, who would, I guess, through necessity or uh, or preconception, presume that they have to do everything. And so it takes, it seems to me, as you were talking about that, a fair degree of confidence in your own ability to step back 
because there is that letting yeah. go. There's the whole idea of the risk piece, which is, you know, what risk am I prepared to take for the consequences of decisions or mistakes that my team might make? And then just general EQ around saying this is what I'm good at and this is perhaps what I'm not so good at and may need to, you know, augment or rely on someone else. And that can be really confronting and challenging for as we said, some leaders. So did you, were you already at that point when, you know, you landed on the Santa Fe or, or did you come to that through the process of, of what you were experiencing? So my problem was I didn't give a... <laughs> <laughs> this is Australia. You can say I it, I think. I Rick, can you say it? We, I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> but it is Australia. Yeah, I didn't give a shit. You know, here was the deal. All I wanted was to be a submarine captain. I didn't care about getting promoted. So I was released from any sort of bureaucratic nonsense. Uh. And um, I, I call it care, don't care. Care passionately and deeply about the people that have been entrusted to your leadership and what you need to achieve. But don't care about sort of the personal consequences to yourself. And I think... For me, that mindset freed me so much that we were able to do things that other submarine captains who were always looking for the next star uh, weren't able to do. And, and ironically, made me much better as a submarine captain than I would have been had I been worried about. Uh, because what happens is you just you play it safe. Yes. You know, you don't yes. go to the very edge. And uh all those people who are playing it safe, they're just eating oatmeal for the rest of their lives. It's just mush. Uh, so I just think, you know, this isn't a dry run for your real life, right? Yeah. So what is – no one in a boardroom is going to get shot. What What is the problem with these – there's nothing to be worried about. So that, that letting go, I think for, for me in my own career was you know, moving from an individual contributor to a, a manager. As a manager, I was still sort of, if you like, the quarterback or the, the halfback directing play. But that step going to a, a manager of managers where I just made the realisation that I couldn't actually play that role anymore and my leadership couldn't scale was the moment that I actually let go and went, OK, there's got to be a different model. And, and I think to your point, David, it's, it creates a bit more freedom. There's something there though, isn't there, about the degree of personal risk you're prepared to take because the idea is really that if you're – and we've all seen this, <laughs> you know, it plays out uh, quite differently in the depending on the circumstances when you have a leader who is worried about playing politics, yep. then the decisions they make are quite different. So I can imagine that having you come on and say, I'm just here to do the right thing – in the right way or in as best way as possible would be very, very different. <laughs> trying to think of uh, what I can say that's appropriate there. Rick, sorry, you look like you want to say add something there. No, I just was liking the image of uh, the the leaders in the boardroom playing it safe and the and the submarine captain, you know, <laughs> uh, under the ocean flying by the seat of his pants just... <laughs> I have. <Yeah. laughs> um, I know, there is something there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I was, talking, I was working with the uh, private equity group um, a couple months ago. So these, these guys have, you know, private jets and, um, they're investing, uh, one of their sort of core areas is 
fintech, financial technology. So they're starting all these companies and half these guys running these companies are going to be billionaires, blah, blah, blah. And the guy comes up to me and he says, you know, this is a very high pressure situation. You know, our people work under a lot of stress. I'm not sure you understand. And I go, wow, that's, yeah, that's great. You know, you know, talking to a guy who ran a submarine, right? I said, no. So, so what, what could happen? Millions of dollars are at stake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I lose my bonus. And yeah. I'm look, I, I said, are your kids not going to go to college? Oh, oh no. Well, of course. I, I got that covered. <laughs> Is anybody going to die? Are you getting shot at? You know, are you going to lose a limb? And he looks at me funny and I was like, well, I don't really see the risk in that. But <laughs> they didn't have that. I'm not sure that he would have appreciated your perspective. <laughs> I actually spent a little bit of time working in government. And as you would know from you know the US as well, in, in public sector, the implications of decisions are often very frequently and rigorously scrutinised. And so there, yeah. there is a very risk-averse perspective around, you know, what decisions I make. And in some cases, doing nothing is a better alternative to doing something that, that may or may That's not go right. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so the question is, are we trying to avoid errors or achieve excellence? Yes. And, and most, most organizations are trying to avoid errors. So, you know, you know, when Rick described this, the goals of a submarine, he said, well, I don't want to start a war and I don't want to. <laughs> accidentally. Accidentally. <laughs> I don't have an accident. And, and when I got to the ship, this is exactly what people thought. So if your objective is not to do something, then the best way not to do something is to not to do anything. Yeah. yeah. And the whole organization grinds to this halt, which is pretty much describes government. And so what, <laughs> what you want is we're going to achieve excellence. Yeah. So you watch, go watch some superhero movies. Are those, do, are they flawed? Yes. Do they make mistakes? Yeah. That's what makes it good. Are they perfect? No, of course not. But they're striving for excellence, which results in a bias for action. And so this is one of the things that you've got to shift in the organizational culture is, are we worried about... I was at a big uh, European company a couple months ago, and this company, global multinational company, and uh, they've been in lambasted in the news recently. They're not doing so well for being slow moving and arthritic. And I walk in for my session, and there's this big poster on the wall. It's the CEO, and the CEO who looks like this sort of you know old beard, uh, gray, grizzled white guy with a finger pointing out one mistake is one mistake too many right. <laughs> and i'm like do you think there's a connection between this poster and your guys' inability to make bold decisions <laughs> <laughs> right. do with it yeah. okay whatever <laughs> It's really interesting because, uh, you know, we're, we're living in this digital age and everybody is looking to, you know, Silicon Valley. I'll leave the venture capitalists you mentioned for a moment and their big bonuses. But certainly everybody is looking to Silicon Valley and, you know, looking to replicate the success of those stories and every everything that startup is hot, everything that's digital is hot as well or cool. Mm. Uh, <laughs> either end of the, the heat spectrum there. Anything but tepid. Anything but tepid. 
And so part of, you know, what a lot of organisations are looking at is to is to transplant those types of cultures and that type of thinking into their organisation. And a big part of that is, um, you know, getting around the table and saying, yes, failure is okay. The organisational dynamics and constructs, though, certainly do not allow failure to be okay. One of the things that I, I was really interested in was given your context, which is, as you reminded us, uh, Rick, a nuclear submarine, how do you make make it safe for your team to understand that mistakes are okay, given the implications and potential consequences of that? Because that is part of the learning. So uh, well, how does that play out? Yeah, so because we operated with intent, any mistake that was made was mine. Because I always had a chance to stop it. You know, if you said, hey, I intend to... Uh, submerge the ship, uh, here's why, and here's why it's the right thing to do. And it turned out, and he looked at me, and I said, okay, or very, very, very well. Uh, and it turned out later was not a good idea. Well, it's kind of hard for me to blame that person for that. And so that's why I love this idea of intent. I've got some teams that will say, you know, we can do better than intent. We just want people to just Nike do it, just do it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really like that because – the, the, when in a culture of intent, what happens is people are publicly announcing what they plan on doing before they do it. And that allows other – so they're inviting scrutiny. They're asking other people to give them feedback ahead of time. It hasn't even been done yet. And there's another psychological phenomenon called information avoidance where people, once you get close to a decision – actually stop seeking information because they're worried that they're going to come across a piece of information that may cause them to realize their decision is bad or uh, it just makes them more complicated. And so it avoids those things. And uh, I really liked intent as the sweet is a sweet spot there. Is that what um, Hollywood would refer to? I've seen too many Hollywood movies. Um, plausible deniability. <laughs> Is that the type of yeah, thing you you're don't, referring to? Yeah, you don't – yeah, you don't – yeah, you – to make it safe, you can't have plausible deniability. Yeah. you got to be in it, right? Yeah. And, and and it's great to be talking about safety here because the whole point is when you lean back you – know, Adam may have a story about this, but as you lean back as a leader, if they're not leaning forward, it's not because they don't know. It's because they don't feel safe enough to do that. And so the whole idea is about making it safe. The other thing is you got to be vulnerable. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so uh, because I'm about language, I said, well, what, are the, what, what is the language of vulnerability? And for me, it was things like, you know, I'm not sure about this. Um, any kind of uncertainty or ambiguity coming from a leader is probably a, um, a statement of vulnerability. Hey, I'm not sure. I don't know. This might be wrong. How, what am I missing? Any of those kind of statements invites the team and says, oh, this person's human too. And it makes it easier. You want to lower the barrier for them to challenge you. You yeah. don't want to make it higher. So if, if, I, if, I, if I do correlate that to my own experience, and I come from a technology background, David, and uh, it's, it's, you, you want a level of innovation and it's a design process. Uh, and a lot of the movement from waterfall uh, approach to an agile uh, movement, which has certainly swept the world, is how do you find out the information that you don't know? How, how do we go yeah. and prototype something? How do we 
build something where we go and test it with our customers and get feedback really quickly. So that 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 iterative loop kicks in really quickly, which is I think what you're speaking to in the in the sense of this is what I intend to do and inviting feedback into the process. And it's the same yeah. in an agile process. Building any type of product is it inviting customers to give you feedback on whether you're actually solving the problem or not. And the, certainly the, the mistakes that I, th I think a lot of organisations and we certainly made it was not inviting that feedback early enough into the process. Mm, thinking we know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's the leadership trap, isn't it, that we all think we know. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if the, the sort of the work that you've done um, and the, the good results you had as the, the captain of the submarine and the, and the process that you went through, did that have palpable change on the way other people were running it or were you just kind of a flash pan, this nuclear submarine was run really well by um, this guy but we haven't been able to replicate it? Yeah, it would have been a flash pan uh, except for the fact that 10 of the officers end up getting promoted mm. over the next 10 years to submarine captain. Oh. And they carried forward this idea. It's like the assistant and, and coaches on the successful sporting team yeah. becoming their own coaches. That, I love it. And, and, and actually that is that is the final chapter in the book. Uh, the, all the rest of it is just to hook people into this idea <laughs> because it, we're, we're sort of locked into the short term. Oh, I want to make things better tomorrow. But – you can make things better tomorrow just by being lucky and smart and giving right orders. But what you can't do is create leaders who can go out and replicate it because you haven't taught them how to think or make decisions. You've just taught them how to execute your will. So the idea is by leaning back, they learn how to be leaders and then they can go out and do that. Do the same without you. So, so the answer is yes. Yeah. So if you go on any submarine now, you'll hear you'll hear uh, the language of uh, I intend to. I, so I have. I, I kind of want to explore this question around the the cultural piece because I can see a lot of organisations. Uh, again, I've been part of them, and you know, worked with many who've said, "Well, look, all of these things are okay." It's just, you know, people won't do what we want them to do. <laughs> I have heard that. Um, you know, we I've, I've told people I can empower them. I don't know why it's not working, all of those types of things. And, you know, it's really difficult sometimes to unpack the, the cultural, I guess, uh, biases and inertia and scepticism that accompanies a new leader coming into a role and saying... You know, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm all about. Your context in terms of what what you found when you landed on the sub, you know, in those initial few days and weeks was really interesting because you didn't have a high-performing or what we would call a high-performing team. And so I'm just really interested in hearing from you about, you know, what you were thinking, what you saw and how you started to actually implement some of the, the strategies that you were talking about. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the problem wasn't that it was not a high-performing organization. It was a problem was I didn't know all the details of the ship. So my normal comfort in being able to be the knowing, telling leader was gone. And – but here's the thing. You can only control yourself. So for all these people who are saying, well, my people we won't – you know, I, I told them they could be empowered, but they won't they won't be empowered. So I said, well, what, what's happening? Well, um, so who makes the decision? Well, I, I do. 
Why is that? Because they won't come forward. No, it's because you lost patience and you decided to make, tell it. If you just simply won't make a decision, um, they're going to eventually do something. But but the, that's the wrong way to go. It's too to say you know you make you. I used to make decisions. Now you make the decisions. That's a big step backwards. You want to just take a tiny step backwards. And the first step back is only describe its description. Tell me about it. And so you just have to think about the words that you can say to make it safe for them to step forward. And here's the number. Here's the first activity we give all the CEOs that we coach: go to dinner ten times at a restaurant and don't order. I think we talked about this when I was down at Sydney. I don't know if you tried it, but uh, I think it's super interesting because what happens is two things: one, you have to live with this sort of anxiety of what am I going to get. And number two is you have to judge the server's comfort with with choosing for you. And some of them are going to be fine and some of them will not. And you have to make it safe for that person to make that decision for you. And this is exactly the same thing that happens at work. So you can't just do it once because you may get a server who's fine with it and say, oh, that was easy. It was no big deal. Ten times you got to do it. But the idea is you can practice this idea of giving up control in a small, safe way in very safe environments like wow. – a restaurant. So, so Dave, one of the, the the I think aspects of your your book that that has really challenged me is is this uh, in, driving change through um, getting the right behaviours and then the mindset following, um, yeah. or getting the. Or I've come from a, a a belief of let's get the right mindset and belief system and the behaviours will follow. And if I think about uh, myself and just reducing the the sugar intake I, I have. I started to believe that sugar was bad for me, so I started to reduce the amount of sugar. But the belief system mm. led the, the behaviour. Um, mm. Whereas I think you're you're suggesting that there are times where you're actually better off just getting the right behaviours going and having the mindset follow. So I, I, I've been challenged by that that idea. Can you can you give us a bit of bit more perspective there? Well, yeah. So I think for yourself, you're right. You have to choose. You're going to eat less sugar, and you make decisions uh, which which will then affect it, and it probably stems from a mindset. But when you then extend it to other people, you're in the position of either you can somehow convince them and exhort them and cajole them that sugar is bad for them, and they may or may not come around. Uh, or, you know, if you have kids, you just don't have candy in the house, yeah. which is easy. Right. Don't have candy. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying like, like let the action result in the behavior that you want. Now, uh, don't eat, not eating sugar is a pretty simple thing. A lot of the time, what we're trying to do in organizations is much more complex. It's more, it's things like, I want you to have risk embracing behavior, but just enough, not too much. And I want you to have this collaboration just enough so that you get as much maximum amount of information. But we can't slow decisions. We can't collect information forever. So at some point we're going to commit. So all these things are nuanced. And uh, for all the – here's what it felt to me. Trying to change people's mindset was akin to saying you're all screwed up. Your head's all wrong. Let me help you fix it, which was very threatening to a lot of people versus if I said, you know what? Why don't you try saying it this way instead of that way? It was like, oh, okay, fine. It was like, you know, pass the salt and pepper. It was no big deal. And and then six months later, they're like, oh, my gosh. 
I've been Jedi mind tricked because now I'm not <laughs> that sugar's bad for you because I haven't eaten sugar for six months. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I'm saying. So yeah, for yourself, I do think you're exactly right. I think you got to make a decision and a commitment, but when it comes to changing others, I always find that, um, it, it, it goes the other way. Yeah, for sure. I like the idea of um, people listening to the podcast and just getting the completely garbled message, like walking away going, right, David Marquet said no candy in the house. Got it. <laughs> David Marquet said uh, yeah. don't, never make decisions and never order in a restaurant. Got it. All right. I'm, re- I'm ready. I'm ready to captain a submarine. I don't need to buy the next book now. <laughs> I know. Well, it's kind yeah. of been, it's interesting because to the point though, it's it's those a thousand, you know, little things versus the big, the big aspirational statements, isn't it? Because yeah. That's what we're all kind of looking to to do in terms of, you know, modifying uh, our own behaviour and certainly looking to lean into, you know, everyone else around us. What was the feeling when you started doing this amongst, um, you know, the the crew, David? Because there was um, there I, was at the officers. I think I recall reading who you mentioned were not necessarily there for a long time had not intended to necessarily have a career with the Navy and were probably a little bit disengaged, hadn't been trained. And so, you know, not exactly a recipe for a highly motivated, inspiring team. Obviously, things changed very quickly with them. But how do you how did you actually, you know, deal with that? And how did they manifest some of those things? Yeah, so it was varied, I'll be honest. Um, of course, I thought everyone loved it, but... Uh, <laughs> we always so do. It's, it's our leadership fail, yeah, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so um, what happened was, and, and uh, it, like two days, we went to see, I made this mistake, I gave a bad order, I made a decision not to give any orders, and two days later, we were having an, an inspection, a, a pretty... In, significant inspection where three days we were driving around shoot torpedoes and missiles and a bunch of people were evaluating us and the ship actually did okay and i'd only been the captain for a couple weeks and only two days at sea and people were shocked and amazed how how did they not totally bomb that inspection and i I, it was a mystery to me but now um that I've got myself educated with some psychology, I think what happened was this. My thinking was we're going to get better and then people will then be happier. First, we're going to improve performance and then we'll improve morale. Morale follows performance. And I think what happened was the opposite. So when I said to the team, hey, you're in charge of your lives, and oh, by the way, there's no day on Santa Fe. So we're all one team. We were enforcing that. And the third thing was I did the uncool thing of talking about the mission of the ship in the context of, of Western democracy and making lives of human beings better. This was not a cool thing to talk about. And uh, I think those three things, the combination of being on a team for a mission that mattered and having control of your life made them happier and not in the sense of, you know, foosball and beanbags, but in a very deep, satisfactory way. And that happiness freed up their prefrontal cortices and they actually became smarter human beings because the stress was keeping them out of their brains mm. and that allowed them to be better. And, and that happened very, very quickly. It was shockingly fast. 
how that happened. Uh, is there any foosball and beanbags on a submarine? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, surely there's a little breakout room. Come on. Maybe it was just the lack of candy on the submarine that actually freed up their minds. He runs a tight ship. Well, there's no gym. I remember listening to something that you were talking about and things that you don't think about are there's no obviously not that. And there's also no gym on a submarine either, David. Right. Which is why you can't have yeah, Navy SEALs on there. It's a completely Rick, – Rick is looking at me like, why are you even talking no, about no, me, Salas? <laughs> I would have imagined there would be a gym. <laughs> I really we have a couple of rickety exercise bicycles for 140 guys. It's not very good. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so – Go ahead. No, you're right. Well, I was going to tell, tell a story about the SEALs. Uh, <laughs> Alice was leading me into that. So we – so 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 submarines are like Uber for SEAL teams, right? SEAL team wants to get somewhere, they gotta call us, we take them there. That's yep. such a cool analogy, yeah. David. That Uber. is that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> or Lyft or whatever you want. Anyway, um, so the SEALs you know, we're like, hey, we'll just carry them with us. Cause what happens is they're like, no, 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 we can't stay on board for more than a few days because our highly attuned athletic bodies will deteriorate with every passing day. I'm like, are you serious? But the Navy actually agreed and said, no, they're going to get a ride at the last minute so they can stay ashore, work out. And so we have to pull the ship away from uh, the coastline and rendezvous with a helicopter out at sea. So anyway, you go out there and you do that. And uh, so what happened, like you're the captain, right? You're standing on the bridge. The helicopter comes. You can't even see what's going on deck. 11 seconds later, flies away. They, in the meantime, they've dropped a rope. 11 people fast rope down on the deck, come forward, go down the hatch, shut the hatch. It all happens very quickly. And uh, when there's a helicopter there, no one can hear anything. It's like <laughs> So, if, so if, if anyone's thinking you're going to tell anyone what to do, they're in fantasy land. If you haven't created a team that knows what to do without being told when you get to that moment, you're done. And that's what I see leaders do. They don't do the hard work ahead of time. The hard work ahead of time is boring. Let's do it again. Let's practice it again. Let's talk about it again. How it's going to go. What's going to happen? Oh, that's so boring. Yeah. Let's do it in fair weather, bad weather, medium weather, sun, light, dark, rain, snow. Oh, my gosh, Captain. It's now not going to be all of these. Yeah, I know, but we don't know which one's going to be. Yeah. yeah. Is it worth us starting a rideshare app explicitly for Navy SEALs uh, <laughs> so they can open their app and little all the submarines in the area pop up and you've got a rating and they're like, oh, the Santa Fe, that's only got 4.6. Oh, no. yeah, because yeah. it doesn't have a gym. Yeah, <laughs> You can just put an S in front of Uber too and it's got sub in the title. It's like super. Oh. <laughs> nice. I like that. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You, your, your driver has done 997 trips. <laughs> I just want to make uh, no life easier for our Navy no. SEALs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Known for good conversation. D- David, I'm imagining uh, some of our listeners uh, listening in and going, look, this this all makes great sense. Uh, I want to uh, empower my team. I want them to show intent. I want them to feel, feel some sense of purpose uh, and uh, have increased morale, but that's just not going to work in my organisation because of the other leaders around me. What would you say to, to someone who, who might be going through that thought process? Yeah, hey, uh, you're responsible for your team. Uh, is it easy? No. If it were easy, we wouldn't need to be doing podcasts on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. state of the world. But the, 
like I said before, this is not your practice life. You know, you're going to regret doing the right thing for your team 30 years from now. You say, oh, yeah, I really wish I hadn't stood up for my team, you know, one too many times. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. So the so the, pro- the problem is there are a lot of things in human that are baked and hardwired into human nature that were great for the last 100,000 years when we were evolving and where life was – you know, we lived to be 30 and then we died and it was Those very, you know, sh- <laughs> yeah, I know it was so great. And, you know, brutish, brutish and, um, harsh. and, but they don't help us now. Okay. And they don't help us now. And so we're, so for example, hierarchy, mammals all create hierarchy. You put two mammals together, they're immediately got to figure out who's who, where they are in the hierarchy. And then step two is you got to climb the hierarchy. Uh, so that's why all these marketers put, you know, the logo on the outside so that everyone else can see that you're wearing, you know, so-and-so's glasses and it's all about social hierarchy, but in an organization, uh, steep hierarchy inhibits communication. So you, what you actually want to do is to deliberately flatten the hierarchy and this comes against your instincts Yes, because when you're the top dog. You're like, yeah, it feels good. Everyone comes up, oh, so yeah, oh, your ideas are the best. Yes. <laughs> it's about protection usually at that stage, isn't it? As yeah. opposed to uh, as opposed to disseminating that. Yeah. Uh, we are coming to the end of our time here um, of this fascinating discussion, <laughs> nuclear submarine-based discussion that we're having. Um, so are there any final thoughts, comments, uh, questions uh, before we wrap it all up? Adam? Uh, no, look, I, th- I think it's been fascinating. So I, I love love the topic, and I love your your story, David, and uh, very excited about uh, uh, what comes next for yourself. Um, probably uh, a question that, that comes to mind is uh, how, how, as you've gone around and spoken to lots of different organisations and seen the challenges that they're facing, is that much difference to what you faced on, on the submarine, or what, what have you learned since uh, going out and, and speaking to other organisations? You know. This may come as a disappointment, but what I've learned, (laughs) along with everything else, (laughs) humans everywhere want the same thing, okay? Humans want a better life for themselves and their families. Humans want – I can't tell you how many times I went into a company in India or China or Singapore or South America where people would say, oh, these people – they're not going to, you know, they just want to do what they're told. They're happy doing what they're told. They're happy with their crappy little lives. And, you know, they don't want, you know, and these, th- that's crazy, right? That's just crazy. We may be starting from different places. You know, they may, they may be longer cultural biases against standing up and telling your boss that, that, that they're an idiot. But that's why it's even more important for the boss not to give orders, to make it easier for those people to speak up. And I, I've had multiple experiences where uh, the Westerners who maybe were owning these companies would tell me that, and then, I, and then I would go in and talk to their people, and they were like, no, that's that white man crap you're laying on us. We, we want a better life. We love having control, you know, and – there's this universal desire to improve ourselves for ourselves and, and, and the people uh, who come after us. 
I don't find we that, got a that. That's not disappointing, David. I think that's that's, that's yeah. a great story. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? Which is, I, I think at the heart of it, we're all human and we want to be um, treated, uh, you know, respectfully mm-hmm. and we want to do something that matters. Everybody wants purpose. We all want to work in an environment where we feel like what we do matters and we all want to work with really good people, <laughs> smart and interesting people. And sometimes that's actually harder to achieve than others. As leaders, we want to we want to create that environment. And as individuals, we want to work in that environment. Uh, I never thought that I would um, want to be on a submarine. <laughs> but if there was anyone yeah. that I would want to have have been on, it would have been the Santa Fe while you were um, oh. while you were on it um, and leading it, David. So, uh, reading your book and and you know listening to what you've been talking about today and sharing really genu- generously with us has been really inspiring. So. I just want to say thank you for your time. I'm really looking forward to the new book coming out. You said it was out next year. Is there any sort of uh, sound bite that you want to give us about what we can expect from it? My new book's called uh, Talk Like a Leader. And the idea is that the language that we naturally fall back on is the language is formed in the past, obviously. And the language is an industrial age language. And so the words that we use are industrial age words. And if we're not very deliberate about the choice of words, we're going to fall back on industrial age words. Uh, so, for example, this this um, we have a we have a preference for binary questions. Is it safe? Yes. yes. Um, uh, is, is it the right? Uh, you know, are you sure? Uh, are we good here? So they're binary, self-affirming questions. All day long, this is what I hear. And you really want to do the opposite. You know, how safe is it? What am I missing? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm collecting stories about language. That Beautiful. sounds really interesting. I read um, something recently that um, which I wasn't aware of, which is that the um, human brain likes certainty and when there's uncertainty, it processes it in the amygdala. Mm. So there you go. So I can see why the importance of things like uh, the language becomes really important. Yeah. David, uh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for everyone joining uh, this uh, ship today and having nuclear submarine-based discussions that was illuminating uh, and enjoyable. You've all been amazing and I think we can all agree we achieved this podcast's overriding objective. We didn't let water on the boat and we didn't accidentally start a war. Well done all. That's all we can say. (laughs) Thank you, David. Thank you.